0: Hi everyone, thanks so much for downloading Dark Histories The podcast has been growing really well recently and that's thanks to all you good people who share it around with your friends and families Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can help to support the show throughout the growth and keep it sustainable We have a Patreon, an Amazon book list, a coffee, and an Audible affiliate link so if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way to do so that suits you All of the links for those various things can be found on the website over at darkhistories.com and of course just continuing to share it around with all your friends and families is a huge help so thanks so much for all your help with that. Okay, let's get on with the show. The Victorian press in England is well known for its hyped up sensationalism. Stories of murder, suicide and violence scattered throughout the pages alongside advertisements for snake oils and pornographic postcards. It was a sharp reflection of the interests of the masses, undergoing an ongoing attempt at gentrification. Of the thousands of editions, one paper stands out above the rest for its continued pinpoint sensationalism and mass appeal. It was the Illustrated Police News, familiar to anyone who has ever searched the internet for Jack the Ripper, The paper's large front page illustrations prevailed for over 50 years and continued voluntarily long after most other papers turned towards the inclusion of photography. The illustrations could depict the scenes after the fact and encourage the reader to employ their own imaginations upon the paper's tightly driven narrative of evil and justice. Today we take a look at the paper alongside some of the bizarre, the strange, and the downright scandalous stories that adorn these pages throughout the 19th century. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Dark Histories. Well, it's kind of Episode 2, but, you know, I kind of messed that up, so I guess it's Season 3. Anyway... Season 3, episode 3 of Dark Histories. Welcome, I'm Ben. I hope you're all doing well and bearing up with this cold. I thought it was pretty cold in England and, you know, the last couple of days we've had like a little bit of snow, almost a centimetre or something. And then uh, and I saw on the news that America is apparently undergoing like a once-in-a-generation freeze and it's minus 30 degrees in some places. But I hope you're all holding up well and keeping yourselves wrapped up warm. Before we start, as usual, I just want to thank the new patrons. There's been a fair few since last time I got to do this, because obviously last episode I, I didn't have the chance. So I'd like to say thanks to Benjamin, Richard, Jeshua, Kim, Susan, Crystal, Christopher, Kelly with an I, Tristan and Jenny. So thank you so much, guys, and as we'll see you later... It's just a huge help, and especially right now for something that's coming in the future. But anyway, thank you so much, guys. I'll explain more about that in a moment. But first, I also like to thank everyone who's um, bought books from the Amazon Dark Histories wish list. Uh, the wish list was something that I just chucked out there on a whim, basically. Um, But I've received a bunch of books for season three already and it's just made a huge difference to how I'm approaching season three now um, because before I used to approach episodes and look them up and look to see if there were books and things available and oftentimes I would have to basically do an episode for whichever book could be delivered the quickest on Amazon Prime. But now, you know, having the books on hand, I'm able to just go up to my shelf and sort of look at which books I haven't, you know, which subjects I haven't covered and which books might help me with that and just kind of see which I feel like. And that, that's that been like a total game changer, to be honest, in the way my kind of uh, like mentally I'm approaching this season. So, that, so yeah, I just thanks very much for everyone who's uh, supported in that way. And if you have bought books or if you're thinking of buying books off that wish list, firstly, feel free to buy like the cheapest second-hand books. But secondly, do try and, um, if you can, uh, include like a little note. Or if you want to, because maybe some people don't, but just let me know who it is that sent them. Because I've had a couple of books show up and I've just no idea who sent them to me. And, I, and of course, I would really like to thank you personally for sending them so if if you can let me know that would be great And as of course like i say that was maybe your intended idea was just to send them anonymously in which case as you were i guess yeah so that's that i sort of mentioned it just now but you should definitely stay tuned to the end of this episode for a kind of big announcement about some new stuff coming And it's definitely worth sticking around for. But this kind of makes more sense after this episode. So, yeah, I'll I'll talk about it more later. Uh, As for this episode, it's a really good one. I really enjoyed it. I hope you'll enjoy it too. It's called Everyday Sensationalism in Victorian Britain. The Illustrated Police News. Although periodicals and pamphlets had circulated for many hundreds of years prior, it wasn't until the 18th century that a publication that closely resembled a modern newspaper was published in England. The rise of the press came following the Civil War and Restoration and initially proved to be somewhat problematic for the government, who saw the influence of the freedom of the press as a threat, and as such, a tax was levied on all papers in 1712. Despite these measures, This didn't stop what was to become a burgeoning market and by the mid-18th century there were 12 established London-based newspapers and 24 Provincial papers that were not only existing but thriving. On the 1st of January 1785, publisher John Walter released the first edition of his new paper named The Daily Universal Register. Three years later, in 1788, it would change its name to The Times a name which it continues to use until today. Twelve years later, The Observer, another paper that still runs today, would publish the first Sunday newspaper. By the turn of the century, the business of writing the news was an unstoppable force, barrelling through taxes and restrictions, and London alone saw a rise in titles from 12 to 52. In response, taxes were raised twice more, both in 1802 and 1815, but by the mid-19th century, the game was up and after a reduction in 1836, taxes were completely abolished in 1855. This abolition opened the gates to the industry and a swathe of new titles flooded onto the market. The Illustrated Police News was one such paper. First published on 20th February in 1865, it bucked trends and caused a stir in more ways than one. In the earliest days, the news itself was not often seen on the front pages of papers. Instead, these pages were often reserved for adverts from both companies and individuals. They were densely packed sheets of print with streams of content tied end to end. The concept that one would read the paper scrupulously from cover to cover had not yet been challenged, and it wasn't until much later that this notion held by the newspaper editors would be rudely awakened. As such, headlines played only a minor role and were often overlooked entirely with stories running into one another, often with only the first word of the next story italicised to denote its beginning. The stories were often short and snappy and held very little in the way of detail, instead offering generalised stories pulled from around the country. Take for example these two unrelated stories taken from the Evening Mail, published on the 1st of January 1802, which run on from one to the other without skipping a beat. The late French naturalist, Dolomieux, has left behind him a most interesting work, nearly completed, on the philosophy of mineralogy. It was written during his confinement. The black, created by the smoke of his lamp, diluted with water, served him for ink. His pen was a small bone which, with infinite labor, he ground on the flagstones of his cell and the greater part of the work was transcribed on the margin and between the lines of the few books they allowed him to keep. Some extracts from this work have appeared in the Miner's Journal. It is to be regretted that the author did not live to finish it, as he intended to introduce a new clarification into the science and to improve the ancient nomenclature. Yesterday afternoon about 2 o'clock, a fire broke out at Lady Pembroke's house in Cavendish Square, which from its violence for several hours, seemed to threaten destructions to the whole neighbourhood and to fill the inhabitants with terror. This continues as such for all four of its pages, only broken by headlines denoting a new section, with each section focusing on various locales. Later studies would show that for the majority, papers were in fact not often read as books, but as much as a quarter of the content was skipped over clearly an evolution in content delivery was necessary. Several papers took up the charge, though one aimed to change the game entirely. After the reduction in taxes in 1836, Britain saw a boom in weekly publications, including the Illustrated London News, which was quite novel for the time. The Illustrated London News was the first paper to include illustrations on the front page rather than a simple title followed by blocks of dense script. It was founded by Herbert Ingram and its first edition released on Saturday the 14th of May 1842, costing sixpence. It was 16 pages long and the paper's title was adorned by an extravagant illustration of the London skyline with St Paul's Cathedral as a centrepiece. The majority of the front page was a public address stating the paper's mission with no small degree of pomp. In presenting the first number of the Illustrated London news to the British public, we would fain make a graceful entree into the wide and grand arena which will henceforth contain so many actors for our benefit and so many spectators of our career. In plain language, we do not produce the Illustrated newspaper without some vanity, much ambition and a fond belief that we shall be pardoned the presumption of the first quality by realising the aspirations of the last. For the past ten years, we have watched with admiration and enthusiasm the progress of illustrative art and the vast revolution which it has wrought in the world of publication. Through all the length and breadth of this mighty empire, to the wonderful march of periodical literature, it has given an impetus and rapidity almost co-equal with the gigantic power of steam. It has coveted blocks into wisdom and given wings and spirit to ponderous and senseless wood, It has, in its turn, adorned, gilded, reflected, and interpreted nearly every form of thought. It has given to fancy a new dwelling place to imagination a more permanent throne. It has set up fresh landmarks of poetry, given sterner pungency to satire, and mapped out the geography of mind with clearer boundaries and more distinct and familiar intelligence than it ever bore alone. Art, as now fostered and redundant in the peculiar and facile department of wood engraving, has in fact become the bride of literature. Genius has taken her as its handmaid and popularity has crowned her with laurels that only seem to grow the greener the longer they are worn. Here we make our bow, determined to pursue our great experiment with boldness, to associate its principle with a purity of tone that may secure and hold fast for our journal the fearless patronage of families, to seek in all things to uphold the great cause of public morality, to keep continually before the eye of the world a living and moving panorama of all its actions and influences, and to withhold from society no point that its literature can furnish or its art adorn, so long as the genius of that literature and the spirit of that art can be brought within the reach and compass of the editors of the Illustrated London News. For all the grandeur, the final quarter of the page was devoted to a story bearing the headline Destruction of the city of Hamburg by fire. Alongside this was an illustration titled View of the conflagration of the city of Hamburg, showing the docks set aflame. In its pages included a number of illustrations of the Queen Victoria's first masquerade ball and saw the inclusion of small headlines that broke up each story for ease of reading it was an unequivocal success, with its first edition selling 26,000 copies. By 1855, it had a circulation of 200,000 copies per week. The Times, despite its global reputation and daily publication, was sitting at the same time on numbers of around 360,000. Competitors soon appeared. Two of the largest, Lloyd's Illustrated News and the Reynolds newspaper, launched in 1843 and 1850 respectively, and whilst both enjoyed success throughout the 19th century, neither scaled to quite the same heights as the Illustrated London News. Herbert Ingram died in 1860 in a paddle steamer accident on Lake Michigan, and as such, he never saw the launch of perhaps the most famous publication to ape the Illustrated London News' original style of journalism. The Illustrated Police News launched four years later in 1864, and would take the concept laid out by these early illustrated pioneers and run with it. The Illustrated Police News was founded in 1864 by Messrs. Liam Bullpin, and they saw its first edition published on Saturday, the 20th of February. Priced at only one penny, it was significantly cheaper than most other weeklies, and a full five pennies cheaper than the Illustrated London News. As such, it sought to hit a wider, national and broadly more working-class audience. In stark contrast to the first edition of the illustrated London News, the editorial announcing its mission statement to the world pronounced itself rather more simply as The People's Paper with an aim to provide readers with a truthful narrative of the lives and trials of criminals, past and present. Its content was essentially a simple equation, aiming to marry two of the Victorian era's most popular genres. The police newspaper, detailing crimes and punishment, with the images from the illustrated journals, such as the Illustrated London News, The Graphic and Reynolds Newspaper. It consisted of only four pages and it aimed to stuff them full of sensationalism, melodrama and quote-unquote true stories of crime. It was an immediate success, and hit its stride with a circulation of around 175,000 copies. In 1865, the paper was taken over by George Perkis, a man who was no stranger to sensationalist publishing. Perkis, born on the 10th of February 1832, was the son of a publisher, George Perkis Sr., who operated out of a small bookshop in Soho, and who had already published over 20 penny serials during the mid-19th century, with titles such as The Life and Adventures of Jack Shepherd, A Library of Romance, and The Mysteries of the Past. Perkus Jr. had earlier partnered with his father, though the company was dissolved in 1856, three years before the death of Perkus Sr. After his father's death, George Perkus Jr. sought to get back into the publishing game, and within the Illustrated Police News, he immediately saw promise. Liam Ballpin sold the paper to Perkis in 1865 and they attempted to found a similar paper in America shortly after, though the project failed to get off the ground. Over the following decade, Perkis experimented with the concept and in the years following his initial purchase of the Illustrated Police News, he published several other weeklies, each with either slightly less or slightly more risque stories, though they all failed in comparison. The Illustrated Police News walked a fine line between out-and-out scandal and respectability and eventually Perkins committed himself to focusing on the paper exclusively, though he continued to publish a handful of penny serials. By 1868, the entire front page of the Illustrated Police News was dominated by the woodblock prints it was becoming famous for, each one storyboarding the stories of the week. The images were often melodramatic, showing moments of passion from the violent crimes it covered. They aimed to put the reader into a perspective of having been there, and at the same time, they shaped the narrative of what the public and society at large should make of the characters in the week's stories. Murderers who were caught were often depicted at the gallows weeping, or on their knees begging forgiveness, whilst victims were almost always depicted as falling down, helplessly innocent. They were classic action scenes of good versus evil, with little ambiguity. The portraits of the main players were also unambiguous, and they employed various shading techniques to enhance a cold stare or soften a victim's face to present each in a way that told the reader exactly what to expect from their personalities. These illustrations were more than just great advertising and entertainment, though this certainly was a role in which they played, but they also allowed the paper to control the narrative, whilst allowing the reader to exercise their imaginations. One could gain an element of excitement from reading a portrait, like a criminal investigator for themselves. The illustrations were central to the drama, spectacle and sensationalism of the illustrated police news. It was pure entertainment, and the readership swallowed it up, whilst the circulation ballooned. Although focusing on crime stories, broadly speaking, the Illustrated Police news covered several topics from murders to natural disasters, suicides and other oddities. During wartimes, and especially later during the First World War, the coverage would become dominated by battle scenes and war news. In these early days, however, crimes and oddities made for the better part of 75% of its output, with headlines including, Jealous Husbands Revenge, Man Crucifies Himself, and Monkeys Fight a duel to the Death. Of course, all with accompanying illustrations. Animal fights were a particular theme more common than one might imagine, and even a cursory search turned up stories involving brawls in a circus between a monkey and a bear, and a classic tale of a fight between a dog and a monkey, which held the central illustration on the front page of the week of the 3rd of February, 1877. A fight of a most remarkable character took place on Thursday last week at a roadside public house within half a mile or so of Newton. It appears that a number of persons had collected together in the house in question for the purpose of witnessing a celebrated dog kill a given number of rats in a specified time. A pit had been formed and bets were made pretty freely before the commencement of the day's sport. The rats were turned into the pit and the dog succeeded in killing the number assigned to him. The dead rats were removed, the owner of the dog sponged the animal's mouth and nostrils. Scarcely had this been done when a new and unlooked-for combatant appeared in the arena. A monkey belonging to the landlord of the house slept into the pit and commenced a desperate attack upon the dog. The monkey was armed with a short, thick club. The dog soon began to be irritated and a most extraordinary encounter took place. The dog, who had been belabored most unmercifully with the club, gave his assailant two or three severe bites. Nevertheless, his active opponent would not give up the contest. The bystanders shouted and cheered the combatants. The monkey flew around the top of boards encircling the ring, dexterously dodging out of the dog's way. Eventually, he sprang upon the back of his canine foe, laid hold of the dog's nose, at the same time striking him repeated blows with the club. The owner of the dog jumped into the ring, and with the assistance of two or three friends, he (laughs) he succeeded in parting the combatants. Had this not been done, the probability is that the dog would have been killed. The monkey was, of course, declared the victor. The Illustrated Police News is perhaps more famous today due to its coverage of famous murders rather than bizarre animal baiting. Perhaps the most famous are the depictions of the Whitechapel murders, and its coverage of Jack the Ripper. Second only to the star in its sensationalism, the police news had the added advantage of being able to depict the crime scenes and emblazon them across the front page. Though in the murder reports themselves, the tragedy and horror of the incident would always be pushed front and centre, the editor surely rubbed his hands together at the thought of the circulation figures for the week. Despite the paper's common line of professing itself above such matters, it could not resist a full page illustration of the Mary Kelly butchering. The pandering worked more to heighten the melodrama than actually push a genuine, concerned attitude. Another Whitechapel horror, more revolting mutilation than ever. Open bracket with full page illustrations. Close bracket. Murderers, like Jack the Ripper, were not altogether common, unfortunately for George Perkis, and so in the downtime between juicy stories, it may do with lesser affairs of crime. Thrusting a rat in a man's face. Subject of illustration. On Wednesday last week at Marlborough Street, John Cronin, 26, Colonnade Russell Square, a horsekeeper, was charged with assaulting Robert Devereux, a cabman, About a quarter past eight o'clock on Tuesday morning, the prosecutor drove into the hay market and asked the prisoner to move another cab of his, which he was in charge, so that he might draw up his own properly. Cronin immediately drew a rat from his pocket and thrust it in the face of the prosecutor, and on the latter remonstrating, prisoner struck him a violent blow in the mouth with his fist. A constable came up and the prosecutor told him what the prisoner had done. Cronin then struck him a second time in the presence of the officer. He was taken into custody. At the station, he pulled several rats from his pockets. Mr Mansfield, the magistrate, sentenced Cronin to a month's imprisonment without the option of a fine. Whilst not scared to address the paranormal, and it certainly wasn't above such stories, in general, the reports when dealing with such content tended to report matters with tongue firmly in cheek. Spectres were often reported on with flippancy and many alluded to pranks and mischief. The stories, however, were miniature Penny Dreadful serials in themselves and were prime examples of the paper's sensationalist style. A Ghost at a Watermill, Stockport As said as it may seem in this unromantic age to describe the doings of a ghost, we feel we should not be doing our duty as journalists with the freaks of one of that fraternity in our own matter-of-fact town left unrecorded. The event which we are about to record happened at Park Mills, Stockport, belonging to Messrs M. Dickey and & Co. and as they occurred but last week and can be well authenticated, we need no further excuse for contributing to the ghost law of the country. The Mills referred to stand in close connection with several other cotton factories, some of which, beside those of Messrs Dicky & Co, are worked partially by water which is conveyed in large underground sluices for a long distance. This is notably so at the mills in the park, the outlet of one of the tunnels being an immense vault in which is placed the huge wheel which supplies the mills with power. The gloom of this lonely place is at all times oppressive whilst the rushing of the waters which are spanned by planks to walk on and the movements of the wheel render it a spot little frequented by the boldest, whilst timid persons, at all times, give the wheel hole a wide berth. Connected with it, however, are several smaller vaults used for storing purposes, rendering it necessary at times for persons to pass that way. On Tuesday evening last week, just before the hour for leaving work, an overlooker named Whittaker had occasion to visit the wheelhouse and had not proceeded far through the vault before he became conscious of the presence of a tall spectral figure standing at some little distance from him. At first he thought he might be deceived, but a light which he carried revealed the fact of a shadowy something being present beyond dispute. His way of retreat was clear, and, with more equanimity than most men would have possessed in the same contiguity to an unearthly visitant, he made the best of his way back from whence he became though scarcely believing his senses as to what he had seen. He, the next morning, told his experiences to two of his fellow workmen, named Jackson and Cowburn, and the three resolved to unravel the mystery, if possible, the next night, by visiting the lonely place at the same hour as the spectre had been seen the previous night. It is said that Jackson and Cowburn disbelieved the story of their comrade, and they viewed the matter in anything but a serious light. At the time appointed, the trio made their way to the wheelhouse, one of the three doubtless feeling the affair was not quite so much a joking matter as did the others. Dark as was the night, the interior of the vault was darker, and the flickering light they carried but feebly illuminated the chaos before them. They had not proceeded many yards before their eyes encountered the ghost standing some little distance away in the gloom, clothed from head to foot as in a winding sheet. One of the party, we are not told which, beat a precipitate and somewhat ignominious retreat, whilst his companions remained just long enough to make out that the subject was not an imaginary one and was considerably taller than a man. With many an anxious look to the rear, the two men made tracks for more congenial quarters, joining their affrighted comrade who waited their return at a safe distance away. Next day, the facts of the previous night's adventure were made known to the sons of Mr. Dicky, who held a prominent part in the management of the mill and their curiosity being aroused, it was decided to make yet another visit to the wheelhouse in the evening, and, if possible, ascertain the cause of the strange visitants appearing. To test the matter still further, it was decided that Mr. Wardle, who is a volunteer possessing a rifle, should make one of the party. Half past five o'clock found some six or eight persons ready to descend to the spectre's haunt, provided with a bull's-eye lantern, a rifle, and some blank and ball cartridges. They had not to wait long before the apparition again put in an appearance. When the men began, like Hamlet, to question the ghost as to why he visited the place, though in accent and languages far from Shakespearean, but the spectre answered not a word. Summoning courage, one of the party suggested firing a shot from the rifle, which was done by inserting a blank cartridge. Still, the apparition moved not, but stood its ground. The word was given to try another shot, but before this could be done, the ghost beat a rapid retreat in the direction of an aperture which led to the mill yard, and before any of the party could follow it, vanished out of sight. Some clue to the mystery is said to exist in the finding afterwards of a length of white cloth which is supposed to have been part of the habiliment of the strange visitor who is supposed to be an employee of an adjoining firm. The affair has caused much excitement in the neighbourhood but there are many who still believe in the ghost of the park mill wheelhole who will doubtless be seen many times yet if only in the imaginations of the more credulous workpeople. people. Another strange element of the culture of the paper revolved around its stories of somnambulists, or sleepwalkers to you and me. These stories generally fitted into one of two categories, either somnambulist murderers killing people in their sleep, as was the case in the story headlined Wife Killed by Somnambulist Husband, or of somnambulist young women who climbed out of a bed in the black of night naturally scantily clad and proceeded to sleepwalk themselves into one perilous situation after another. The fearful position of a somnambulist, Narrow Escape, which bore a single illustration taking up the entire front page on the 17th of April 1897, depicted a woman walking from a rooftop along a narrow plank of wood, her nightgown frightfully revealing her curves, enough to make any Victorian reader blush as he paid for the issue at his local newsstand. As the circulation of the paper continued to grow, other papers criticised the paper openly, stating that it could inspire the more intellectually minded readers towards crime, and even encourage juvenile delinquency. Under the headline "The Worst Newspaper in England," the Pall Mall Gazette ran an interview with George Perkis concerning the Illustrated Police News on Tuesday, the 23rd of November, 1886. This more upmarket paper had previously held a poll to vote for which publication they thought was the worst, and its readers had spoken. From this lofty position, a reporter for the Pall Mall Gazette took it upon himself to report on the Illustrated Police News, to clue the readership in on that which they so looked down upon. One of our representatives betook himself to the office of the journal which has acquired so unique a distinction. In order to learn something as to its character, career and circulation, and to discover what points his conductors could plead in defence of the publication. He was, without delay, introduced to the proprietor, Mr George Perkis, who received the verdict of the jury with great good temper. The premises are not of the princely and palatial order. A small shop, in fact, does duty as publishing office and the editorial rooms of the upper floors which are diminutive and dark, and certainly, late on a wet November afternoon, also somewhat dismal. The proprietor's apartment is three parts office and one part sitting room, on the desk lie copies of Truth and Punch, while on the walls are a number of coloured pictures, mostly identified in some way with the police news. I acknowledge it to be a sensational newspaper, said Mr Perkis in reply to a question in which the reputation acquired by the journal was suggested, but we are also credited with giving the best portraits published by any journal, not excluding the Illustrated London News and the graphic. During the interview, Perkis showed the Gazette reporter a book filled with hundreds of artist names spread throughout the country, and he offered an insight into its operations. I know there exists a popular impression that our illustrations are largely imaginative, but as a matter of fact we are continually striving after accuracy of delineation. If a tragedy were to occur in London today, we send an artist straight away to the scene. Should a terrible murder or extraordinary incident be reported from the country, we would at once dispatch a telegram to one of the artists whose names are in the book I have shown to you, or, if we were not acquainted with an artist in the locality, we would advise a news agent to instruct one on our behalf. The artist of course always endeavours to get a view of the scene of the tragedy, outrage, suicide or accident, and we always give a picture of the house in which the inquest is held. But naturally, in sketches of this kind, from the very character of the incident, the imagination must be given some freedom. In defence of the claims that his paper promoted crime and criminality, Raising the profiles of murderers in the view of the public, Perkis defended it with a wave of his hand. It does not add to the criminality of the country. In fact, it is a distinct deterrent to crime, because it warns people of the horrors of crime and the results following upon the commission thereof. I know what people say, but as I replied to a friend who asked me why I did not produce some other paper than the police news, we can't all have timeses and telegraphs. And if we can't have the Telegraph all the Times, we must put up with the police news. The advertisements found in the fourth and final page of the paper drew equal criticism. Often focused around the sale of the popular penny dreadfuls, pornographic postcards, contraception, snake oils and dubious patent medicines, astrology readings, small consumer goods such as pocket watches, hats and wigs and racing tips. For single men only, the Carnacie Caber or the Bachelor's Secret Photograph—something really worth having—sent post free for three stamps. New Tale, Giles Evergreen, or Fresh from the Country, commences in this week's number of The Boys of England. With The Boys of England, will be given away model of the London Tower and a model of a ship. Purchase of The Boys of England also gained one entry into a prize draw. Up for grabs were two Shetland ponies, thirty silver watches, thirty cricket bats, two hundred volumes of Scott's novels, two splendid Newfoundland dogs, two hundred boxes of watercolours, and other articles too numerous to mention. Other books and pamphlets for sale included The Adventures of a Ballet Girl, The Death Mystery, and the monks and their maidens a thorough discovery of convent life, neatly bound. Many of the pain medicine adverts outside of the numerous aids for healthy moustache growth were for sufferers of various STDs, though the adverts themselves were often vague, citing malaise or general weakness as symptoms. Despite being largely useless, these miracle cures offered a level of discretion, with the patient being able to send off a few stamps and anonymously buy a cheap miracle cure, a solution far more appealing than a visit to the doctor who might ask awkward questions. A grateful patient, restored to health after many years suffering from excess of youth and private diseases, will be glad to send the prescription and advice by which he was cured for two stamps. The paper continues to grow with this tried and true package for almost 30 years, but as the century began to close out, a new era was dawning. The working classes who had been undergoing a process of gentrification were finding their tastes, pursuits and interests changing and with it, the Illustrated Police News responded in kind. By the 1880s and 1890s, the paper began to see a downturn in violent crime reports, down over 10% on the previous decades, whilst an increase in sports-related stories, betting tips, scandal and non-violent crime reports saw a dramatic increase. In 1892, George Perkis sold the paper to George Lyon Bennett under the company name of Perkis & Family Co. Just months later, on the 19th of December 1892, George Perkis Jr. passed away, with his death making only a small entry in the bottom corner of the second page of the Illustrated Police News that week. Mr. George Perkis, proprietor of the Family Doctor and this journal, died on Saturday morning at his residence in Avenue Road, Regent's Park, from tuberculosis. A few weeks ago he underwent an operation and was thought to be going on well. As late as Friday afternoon he was visited by his old friend, Mr. Arthur Swambrough, manager of the Royal Music Hall. Deceased was highly esteemed by a large circle of friends. After George Perkins' death in 1892, the paper continued to run, though it underwent a great many changes. It jumped up in page count and then fell again upon the outbreak of the First World War, the battles of which dominated the paper throughout, replacing the stories of crime, though the stories pertaining to sport remained untouched. It saw a price increase, and though after the war the crime content returned, it became increasingly marginalised in representation to the paper's sports coverage. Eventually, the paper's long-standing tagline of Law, Courts and Criminal Record was dropped and it was replaced with the Sporting Weekly Record. The paper's publication day changed from Saturday to a Thursday, allowing for readers to scrub up on their football news before the weekend's games, and for the first time, photographs rather than illustrations were used. Eventually, the paper would turn almost entirely towards sports, and on the final edition, published on March 3rd, 1938, the paper was 100% sports coverage. The headline on the front page read, Teams That Should Win Saturday's Cup Ties, and the illustration was of football stars, George Cummings of Aston Villa and Charles Craven of Grimsby Town. Whilst the paper's dramatic change of face and eventual downfall was relatively swift, it reflected a greater societal change that had taken place since its birth. The working classes of the mid-Victorian era were slowly tamed, their leisure habits refined and gentrified. True to its humble mission statement from the first edition, it had maintained its place as the People's Paper for over 50 years, treading a fine line between scandal, violence and respectability. It aimed at a mass market with perfect precision. And whilst the truth of many of the reports is certainly something that could be argued, it offers a fantastically intriguing and oftentimes darkly humorous view into the entertainment pursuits of the Victorian working class. Whether or not I had managed to uphold the high values of morality professed by the first edition of the Illustrated London News is doubtful, but hey, at least we all got to hear the story of that one time that the monkey and the dog had a fight in a pub in Newton. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of the Illustrated Police News, which is a profoundly and darkly funny publication when you read it in retrospect. This episode was a little bit different from other episodes, sort of more similar to the zombie and the vampire episode, where I sort of took a subject and gave an overview of it. And I'll talk a bit about how I came about that and also. A big announcement because of that, I, I guess, after these short ads. As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible, which is really great. I'm actually a member of Audible myself, so I'm really glad to bring in an advertiser that, you know, I actually do rate. For those that are not aware, Audible is an audiobook subscription service whereby you pay a monthly sub and you get a credit with each month to purchase an audiobook of your choice. When you cancel your subscription, you get to keep all your previously purchased books which you can access across devices from Mac, Windows, Android and iOS and they all stay synced up with one another. If this all sounds like something you might be interested in, hop over to audible.com forward slash dark histories and you can find a special offer. Sign up for a free month, including your first credit, to purchase an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the month you decide that it's not for you, you can cancel, not pay a penny, and you get to keep the audiobook from your trial, so it's literally a win-win. Thanks very much for suffering through my spiel, and once again, if it does appeal, head over to audible.com forward slash or you can find the link on the support page of darkhistories.com. Cheers. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? Of course, you can hit that 30 second skip button, and that's all cool. But a much cooler way of skipping the ads is to sign up to the Dark Histories patron. You get a bunch of different benefits for doing so, including ad-free shows, access to early release episodes, the full-back catalogue of bonus episodes, including the live stream archive and all the other bonus content. You get access to all my research notes for each episode, and you get the added bonus that you're actually a part of the show, helping to keep it independent and sustainable from as little as $1 a month. So if you think that might be something you might be interested in doing, hop over to darkhistories.com and you'll find the support page with all the details to get involved. Thanks very much for not skipping this and giving my hard sale a listen. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. So yeah, I, this this episode was a funny one. Basically, I have a few episodes planned for the start of this season and i was looking at them and they were more or less all quite murdery and although they kind of jump between sort of there's some witchcraft in there and things like that they're all quite murdery so i decided to sort of look for something a little different and i was pouring through the archives of the illustrated police news to try and find something worth sort of hooking onto And it's something that I've done time and time again, is just find all of these hilarious stories or interesting stories or just fascinating little cultural bits and bobs, but they never seem to lead anywhere. They were always, there's no sort of proof to any of the stories or anything like that. And, you know, the truth of them is questionable at best and i always sort of found it frustrating that like i had nothing to do with these stories because they were so funny and 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 so interesting and just fascinating to me at least and i suddenly sort of dawned on me like hey this this is an episode in itself i can just write about the illustrated police news like this can be a this week's episode so that's how the episode came about but now for the announcement that i was talking about at the start that kind of plays into that and it will make much more sense now we've had the episode but launching tomorrow first episode of the dark histories podcast yesterday today it's a sister podcast that i'm going to release monday to friday every morning and is a sort of mini complimentary episode to the usual Dark Histories I'll still be doing Dark Histories as normal so you still get the bi-weekly episodes as we were but in between that Monday to Friday I'll be releasing short episodes each morning around about sort of like five minutes long detailing the news of the day from at a random point between the last 400 years maybe I made that sound really complicated but essentially it's you can think of it as a sort of today in history kind of vibe except from rather than be like sweeping historical events, I'm going to pick out small interesting, funny, dark humorous all these sorts of kind of uh, more generalised cultural tidbits from the newspaper archive that I've got access to um, that could span any time over the last 400 years, basically. So that's going to be a new endeavour, I guess. First episode is going to be releasing tomorrow, Monday the 4th of February, and there will be one episode every day, Monday to Friday, from here forwards, I guess. Like I say, it won't affect the normal Dark Histories episodes. They'll still be coming out bi-weekly, as we were on Sundays. And it'll all be in the same feed, so you'll get them delivered Monday to Friday. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making them, because I just find all of these little stories absolutely fascinating and hilarious in a really dark sort of way. They're not always hilarious, they're not always funny, but... That you know, they're always fascinating, and I just wanted to find a way that I could use them and bring them to others because I could never fit them into an episode because they never went anywhere. But they were—they have value, you know—they're—they're they're, they're entertaining. So this is just a way that I can bring those to everyone, I guess, and share them. So that's what's going to be happening. This is the podcast is going to be called the Dark Histories Podcast, yesterday, today. And, yeah, you'll get the first episode tomorrow. So I really hope you listen to it. You could just skip them if you're not interested and you'll still get the bi-weekly episodes as we were. But I hope you won't. I hope you'll enjoy them because I really enjoy making them. And on that note, probably going to start wrapping this episode up. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so, we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of it you can find, if you go to darkhistories.com, you'll find links to everything, as well as links to how to support the show, the various ways you can do so, that would be really fantastic, so it's really helpful, and as I sort of alluded to at the start of this episode, really helpful now, as I'm sort of looking to expand the content of the show, so that's you know, the the patrons that signed up recently and obviously the ongoing patrons have all been a massive help in sort of sorting that out. So, yeah, if you can support that, that's great. If not, no worries. Thanks very much for listening. Like I said, stay wrapped up, stay warm. Hopefully the colder weather's going to pass soon. I was only thinking the other day that we're already moving into February and that means that spring's on its way, so I guess fingers crossed for that and keep wrapped up until then take care thanks for listening sleep tight